Hi, everyone. I'm Mackie Craven, a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in business software companies at the expansion stage and work closely with their teams to help them build large and enduring businesses. This season of Build is dedicated to a topic we've become increasingly passionate about, product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with leaders from PLG companies to find out about what it took to build and scale their businesses, advice they would give their younger selves, and some pretty fun and surprising facts along the way. Now, on with the show. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Alex Marinos, founder and CEO of one of the newest members of the OpenView family, Belena. We discuss how the company started with recycling bins, the solution they built to minimize the entire team's pain and the product he'd love to see that was inspired by the newest member of his family. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Build today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Really excited to have you on today. Incredibly excited for OpenView to have led an investment in Blenin for me to join the board and to be working with you much more closely. For those that aren't familiar with the company, just give a little bit of background and context on what you're building. Yeah, so Belena is focused around a very particular set of customer that we think is an existing and growing kind of profile in the world. So we call that the fleet owner. So imagine the person that wants to create and run and get more value out of a fleet of devices. And when I say fleet, I don't necessarily mean trucks, but it could be anything from drones to screens to really anything that is a computer but doesn't necessarily have a user on it. So it's not a phone or a laptop, but the sort of ever-increasing amount of intelligent devices out there. That person or that group of people has a set of needs that are very, very badly met by what's out there today and especially what was out there when we started. So they effectively are in this position where they have to really build everything themselves. So they're solving you know, several problems at once and often failing as a result. That sort of pattern, I think, is not unique to us. That is the classical crying out for infrastructure bat signal. <laughs> so we kind of were fortunate enough to see it by our own experience, being that fleet owner in a very specific case. And we thought that, you know, since we were looking desperately for some assistance and figured out the world had nothing to offer, that we would step in and do it ourselves. That's wonderful. And that decision to go from the world has nothing to offer to actually decide to be the ones to offer it, you know, is sort of one of the defining characteristics of obviously all entrepreneurs and something we love. You know, how did you go through that decision yourself or, you know, put another way, why did you decide to actually tackle the problem? Yeah, I mean, maybe as a way to sort of tell the story a little bit, we started the company before we had the idea. So it was sort of intended to commercialize some research that I was doing in the university, and we had some you know grand ideas. But to pay the bills, we were doing a bunch of agency projects, and one of them in particular was sort of deceptively simple. So we were at the time, sort of coming from a cloud and web background, we were doing analytics, big data, that sort of thing. And we got given this project to help manage a fleet of screens in the city of London, which is basically the so-called square mile. So it's not London, London, it's the financial district 
perhaps is a better way to understand for <laughs> non-Londoners. So in that area, they had these sort of recycling bins, beautiful recycling bins. It's like Steve Jobs came back and designed the recycling bin, but you know, still, you know, trash went in, bananas were around <laughs> and that whole thing. But they had two beautiful, huge 32-inch screens on them each powered by quite a powerful computer with nice GPU, you know, Intel CPU on there. A lot of them with like very nice, solid connections to the internet. (laughs) They even had connection to the city grid, so unmetered power, right? So best case scenario from an edge computing perspective. And we were like, you know, we know how to manage computers, we know how to run software. (laughs) We'll just put a browser on this and it'll, you know, be showing stuff from, you know, the server and all be good. And we really didn't get very far with that approach before we started hitting various sorts of friction. We needed to update the browser at some point because we needed some new API. So now we're digging under the system, right? We're starting to SSH into the devices, changing the browser. Then the browser needed a new kernel module. Oh my, now we're doing host OS updates and (laughs) sort of bare metal machine that's sort of out there. And if you mess that up, you kind of lose the thing and you become one of these people (laughs) that (laughs) there's photos of your screen sort of showing some stupid error message. I think he's dead, Jim, the one that Chrome shows was the one that we were very often showing. (laughs) So, you know, you get into that situation that kind of drags you in and you realize at some point that you have to take a very different approach to the problem. You can't just keep denying reality and thinking it's a cloud server because it's not. So there's no virtualization there, right? There's no overlord to step in. The overlord is you going out there with a USB stick and a special drill that those machines needed to open it up and (laughs) reflash it. So your mind is quickly focused on finding ways to solve that problem. And I basically told the team, guys, look, this is clearly an infrastructure situation. Find me the thing. It didn't even occur to me that this was not a solved problem. I was insisting to the point of being obnoxious that, you know, how can you not find it? That sort of thing. And then, you know, we looked and looked and looked and then the things that were there were more like, how do I update a billion phones or something like that? Kind of similar, but not quite. Yeah, so that was the situation. We lived under that sort of, you know, fear for a couple of years, you know, constantly sort of trying to keep things going. The customer was complaining that there was no progress on the application. We were like buddy, you should be happy the thing is there. You know, we're solving insane problems that are none of our business to even keep you in business right now. And you're telling me that you don't have a pretty logo spinning on the screen. But I like fully get where they were coming from. If I was in their position, I would probably feel the same thing. So that sort of tension and living in that situation and getting that feeling that nothing exists, you know, the Heroku for IoT, as we were calling the thing that we wanted to find, to sort of bring that cloud ease of sort of iteration to these machines that are like, almost like the cloud, but not quite. They had these like weird kinks, made it look like there was a real thing we could do. And after a couple of years, we actually started to have a good sense of what the solution might look like, because like many of our customers, even to this day that approach us, we did it ourselves. You know, we built a bad copy of what we would end up building. So yeah, that was the thing that sort of made us feel that there's a real problem in the world. You know, we knew that it would be an increasing problem in the world. We weren't going to have fewer devices out there. Yeah. And we felt compelled enough to give it an honest go. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great story, Alex. And as you've begun doing that, and obviously the business has, has come a long way, what are your design principles? 
for the business as a whole. I think a lot of folks talk about design principles with respect to products or any type of you know, physical or digital manifestation. But as we think about a business, what are the core you know, guiding principles that you use as you build? Yeah, so I've been reading a number of things recently, and one that stuck out is called Conway's Law, which I can't recite from memory, but effectively says that the organization's communication structure will resemble the systems that it produces. So in a certain way, the product you build and the organization you are aren't that different. They can't be that separated. It's really, you know, two sides of the same coin, if Conway's law is to be believed. But like John Conway is a, <laughs> it's a pretty serious dude to go up against. So the ideas we use for the product are very similar to what we use for building out the team. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, be humble take into account what is being done, learn as much as you can, but also be first principles and be open to the idea that whatever worked in another context, when we're talking about edge devices, you know, the context would be the cloud, but also the embedded world, right? So yeah, we have two worlds we're trying to combine. Organizationally, we have different sorts of things that we were trying to navigate as well. So we were being a startup, but we started as a remote company, by necessity, we didn't have the budget to sort of build a big local team. And we kind of kept just doing the thing that any sort of software architect would do. So let's say you start with a backend system. You put a few servers together, it starts working, then things are going well, more traffic. What do you do? Well, you find the bottleneck, you fix the bottleneck, you scale up to the next level and keep going. So our approach to the organization is not that different. Of course, we always want to consolidate our understanding, right? We don't want to make it a pile of hacks that will collapse under its own weight. So that is another sort of serious design principle for us, which is be mindful, think about the whole system every step of the way, but fundamentally incremental and practical. We can apply a lot of very advanced ideas. We have really no (laughs) qualms about going to the furthest reaches of research or academia to get inspiration. But the limiting factor is always that we have to be able to apply it and it has to work in reality. It can't just be an elegant structure or, you know, something that gets us applause at the organizational behavior conferences. I don't know if those exist, by the way. (laughs) Maybe they should exist. So always that sort of hand-in-hand, first principles approach and be informed from anything you could reasonably be an interesting source of inspiration, but always hold yourself to the standard of it has to actually work. And then from that, a lot of other things have flowed. We very commonly get feedback from people who join that they are intimidated by the kinds of people they see in the team and sort of the open challenging of a lot of things. I actually remember every year we do a summit. As a remote company, I think this is fairly standard practice, but we definitely stand behind it. We gather the whole team in the same place every year for our annual sort of get together, you know, put a face to the voice or the text avatar or something to sort of build that team spirit. And I had invited some entrepreneur friends of mine to just sort of hang out, you know, become a little bit more acquainted with our culture. And the thing that they picked out that I missed entirely was like, you're the CEO and everybody was being super harsh on you. Everything you were saying in your keynotes, like they were just stopping you and just like challenging you on the spot. And I was like, yeah. That's how we want it. Like This isn't a bug, it's a feature. But a lot of those things have sort of, again, flowed out of the same approach. You know, nobody will disagree, all things being equal, that you do want that. It makes a lot of sense. And it would be great to hear an example of, let's say, you know, you talked out about going the farthest reaches of academia or behavioral science to be inspired by an idea. It would love to hear an example of something that 
either at first blush internally when you looked at it or externally when you mentioned you were running the experiment, you know, seemed, let's say, pretty far off the reservation, but has had a tremendous impact and positive impact on the business so far. Yeah. So I would need to dig quite deep to find maybe the best example of this, but the one that pops into my mind fairly easily is I've been sort of reading into recently sort of the systems approach to building organizations, which isn't some kind of a niche. I mean, the biggest sort of proponents of that, Deming is one who is considered the father of lean manufacturing alongside a Japanese colleague of his. But, you know, people who are well considered sort of management gurus by anybody who has self-respect, you know, you read their principles as how they think organizations will be built. And they will tell you, do not manage people by numbers. Do not set targets. And you read that and just jarring, you know, it doesn't add up with what we think today about organizations. I can't say we've fully applied it inside Belena, but for instance, we have a no commission approach to our commercial structure. And that might feel like, again, a huge break from tradition and how are we going to staff the team and all of that. And there are valid concerns. I don't want to say they're not. But fundamentally, we see that it's working. And the very, very interesting thing that comes out of that, which again is obvious in retrospect, is a commercial team that is not sort of looking to maximize the number of sales they personally make will be a lot more amenable to helping you put a lot of the things they know into the product because they're not fundamentally in it to be doing the work themselves and have it personally be attributable to themselves. They're in it to actually make the company succeed or you know, the sort of intrinsic motivation dominates the extrinsic motivation. Again, this is another sort of cutting edge, let's call it, even though they probably figured this out in the 60s and I'm calling it cutting edge. When you just kind of let people's natural inclination to do the right thing dominate their short-term instincts, they will help you do that. And that's sort of key to a product-led approach, right? You can't really extract that knowledge from the front lines if people are dead set on sort of locking you out of it. And we go and actually pay people to do that. So you can sort of see how that chain of reasoning holds together. but Again, we're talking about a practice that is controversial, to say the least. And I don't even know if we'll end up keeping it in the long run, but you can sort of see how it holds together, at least the argument for it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting is we've seen a number of some of the most successful product-led companies. You know, I think the way some might phrase it is putting customer success before sales or instead of sales, at least for a period of time, right? Individuals who are certainly customer-facing, but focused on ultimately increased and better usage of the product, service, or platform that you provide. And if, you know, you have sort of a low friction way to capture some of that value, right, as folks continue to use it through, you know, pricing and packaging, those things can ultimately be aligned with company revenue and with sales without having to use a more traditional incentive structure. Yeah. I had read this blog post a while back that was very short, but it kind of hit me. It's called Taking Happiness and Passant. It's this chess term where your pawn goes diagonally, but you sort of kill the pawn that's in front of you. So you don't actually go to the square of the pawn you just killed, but you have that effect. And the thing that the person was sort of mentioning is that things like happiness are very hard to pursue directly. You can't go out and say, in my life, I will pursue to be happy and happiness will be the thing. And then you end up being happy. I mean, I can imagine chemical ways where you can manufacture that feeling for like a few days. But, you know, we all know that that's kind of a sustainable path. 
But then if you pursue other things, like let's say meaning or, you know, good relationships or helping others, you know, even to your own cost, or at least it seems like, or in my case, sort of to contribute the most I can or take my abilities and like, you know, tune them to their highest potential and try to sort of put that back into the world. You kind of look back and you say, you know what? Like, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> you just kind of look back at the things you've lived through and you're like, you know, that's pretty all right. And that realization, I think, to me, is kind of the same thing as what you're saying, which is like, if you go for revenue, you know, we know companies that keep the TikTok of revenue, like on a super tight watch, but we see them do things that don't make sense in the longer run. So they're, you know, tactically fantastic, strategically tragic or something like that. And product led to me is that exact same pattern. It's like focus on the things that actually matter. Make your customers succeed. Make sure your business model absolutely is set up. You know, look at your metrics. I'm not saying like blind yourself. Do prudent, practical things. But there's a phrase, you know, the tighter you clench your fist, the more they slip through your fingers. You know, some things just can't be directly grabbed. And you've mentioned, and as a way, right, this idea of product-led growth that's, you know, at OpenView increasingly, we believe sort of the future of distribution of most, maybe not all, but certainly most vectors of software. Would love to hear a little bit about your journey there, right? Because Blaney didn't start as a company necessarily embracing product-led growth from a go-to-market perspective, even if perhaps some of the design principles were sort of always, always there. I have to say this approach, again, as a software engineer, I have never been an actual like practicing, you know, modern software engineer, but that's how I identify myself. It kind of makes a lot of sense, right? You make your product do as much work as possible. And I have to say the inclination to do that was there even sort of in the beginning. But then we sort of said, okay, well, you know, how do we do sales? You know, we brought in some talent that had, you know, they kind of had the playbook and they sort of executed that and kind of the problem was that the rest of the product was being run in this kind of systemic way and the sales approach was kind of like modularizing itself and sort of, you know, <laughs> riding off into the sunset a little bit. And we reached a tension point and we said, okay, well, we can either do everything the way, you know, our commercial approach at the time wanted, which would compromise the product, or we could take the product approach and compromise our commercial approach, which is also super risky. I mean, nobody does that for fun. We ended up choosing that. Again, sort of first principles, just reasoning through it without, you know, too much of an ideological commitment to anything. And then, you know, it just worked. And that's the thing, right? Actually, revenues sort of aggressively started ramping up, which is not what I think almost anybody would have predicted. But again, through this sort of empassant philosophy, it kind of makes sense in retrospect. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, you know, as you think about putting resources to work, right, some all in the product, some pushed more toward, let's say, you know, direct feature development, increasing sort of the breadth and depth of the infrastructure, some toward or with an eye towards, let's say, go to market or thinking about sort of the product-led approach. You know, is that even a dichotomy in your head? Or how do you think about kind of design principles again as they then permeate their way into the product and as you put resources towards building the platform? There shouldn't be a dichotomy, right? Like if you are building something in the product and it isn't helping you, you know, ultimately succeed at some time depth, right? I'm not saying, you know, like you have to see the blip tomorrow in your relevant metrics, but if it isn't geared in that direction, like what are you doing? If your mission statement is different, that's fine. But if you are structured as a commercial company and you are outright saying that your goal is to sort of grow and increase revenues and all of those things, and you're building stuff that 
isn't sort of geared in that direction in some way. That's kind of strange. But to me, it's the what and the how, right? The what, you know, always is we need to somehow have some reasoning about how that leads us to, you know, company success. How can I come to an investor and say, you know, invest in us, we're going to be a huge company and then go on the other side and sort of behave as a, I don't know, some strange type of charity organization, I suppose, or something like that. But the how could be features. It could look like bug fixes. It could look like internal infrastructure. It could look like all sorts of things. And I don't perceive any particular division between the two. I actually feel they're in complete harmony strange way they are i mean one thing that you know i was fascinated to learn about as i got to know you and as i got to know the company are you know not just how you take these principles in designing the business or ultimately designing the product but how then you think about building software and tooling to make everyone in the company more successful and one you know that we were talking about recently that just stands out in my mind is the scheduler could you share a little bit more about that and how you came to it? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's actually a great example of something that I think in retrospect makes perfect sense, but you won't find it in any of the standard practice book. It's maybe one of my prime candidates for you know the thing that will be popularized next that we will say we were doing. We're a remote team. We have people from New Zealand to Vietnam, or let's say from Vietnam to Georgia, including, of course, all of Europe, a number of folks in South Africa, and of course, North America, all the way to Seattle, where I am. And that, you know, can pose some scheduling challenges, to say the least. In particular, we have this internal structure, which is sort of the notion of the project. So, you know, we want to do something. Again, it could be in any part of the product. So we pull in together relevant contributors and we say, you know, you guys work together. You know, this person will coordinate, but everybody will sort of work on their respective bits to make this happen. And because these projects are sort of fluid, so at any given time, you know, people join, people, you know, their part is done, so they drop off. We change the number of projects we have. So that's a set that's rapidly changing. And even people move time zones. I mean, never mind daylight savings, which apparently happens at different times in Britain and the U.S., there's like some weeks that <laughs> they're offset between them. You move time zones as well. Like you go somewhere else for a while or whatever. If you see that through the eyes of a person who has the mission of like, you know, every Monday we need a check-in for every project. Simple. You know, if it's a sentence, it becomes unbelievably unmanageable logistics to do. And practically what you would end up doing is you just kind of set a fixed hour and you say, you know what, if you can't make it, figure it out. Stay late, you know, come early, whatever. Which is to say the least, unsatisfying as a solution, right? If you're asking somebody to stay up at like 10 p.m. or something or wake up at 4 a.m. and they're not me, (laughs) I don't feel good sort of asking that of anybody on my team. So we said, well, what does this look like? You know, this looks like a scheduling problem. In fact, it looks like a constraint optimization problem. And there was Microsoft's Z3 optimizer, and we later found Google's OR tools, which are, you know, for constraint optimization. We formalized the problem as that type of a problem. And essentially, we kind of closed the loop as well in terms of things appearing on people's calendars. And essentially what happens is, you know, there is a block of time on Monday where the check-ins happen. And the optimizer that we've built essentially minimizes for pain, which I find one of the most fascinating concepts. So it tries to figure out, depending on where you are, what your time zones are, what your preferred work hours are, how much inconvenience it's going to make you suffer. And it sort of adds that up across the team for any given solution. So then it tries to find the solution that minimizes the team's pain. And then the cherry on this whole setup is that the two different ones I just mentioned, you know, Google's optimizer is more sort of specific to the problem. So it actually produced, you know, double digit improvement in pain reduction. 
And then we also found that, you know, if you let it run for five minutes, you get, you know, a certain type of solution. If you let it run for 500 minutes, you get an additional 5%. So you start to see if I invest more in this server, let's say to have more cores to run my optimizer, I get to inconvenience my team 5% less. You know, somebody has dinner with their kids, like some amazing thing on the other side of that. And how these worlds bridge and the kinds of things you can get out of that just blows my mind. And that sort of tells me what's possible. The fact that we spend so little ultimately optimizing how our teams work is one of those things that I don't really understand. The world sort of puzzles me in that regard. It's such a direct application of, you know, computing resources to improving people's working lives. And, you know, one of those things that it's incredible to have, you know, started to tackle and to have built, even if it's not, you know, the core product focus of the company and of the team. Yeah, I guess it's worth sort of bringing it back, though. Let's say we didn't do that. We wouldn't be able really to run this number of projects. Fundamentally, people would be quitting or something, right? We would have real adverse impacts on our ability to execute. So there is a real sort of outcome in terms of the actual product in the end of all of that just to know that somebody has dinner with their kids or something is still just enough justification it all rolls down to being able to execute in the way you want to execute given you have a remote team absolutely as you think about all that you've learned in building the company so far what advice would you give to yourself before beginning the planet journey that you almost certainly would not have listened to then but that you believe deeply today Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I know for a fact it was, uh, I don't know, about 10 times harder than I thought (laughs) it would be. (laughs) And not just like, you know, there's a general sense in which people say that, you know, I had to learn management or whatever. We literally had to build probably a 10 times bigger product as our MVP than we even imagined before sort of we felt that the value was so clear that people were just kind of coming in droves. And today we're hearing things like, yeah, I mean, you guys are the infrastructure for my company and I know you're a startup, but you know, it's so much better than doing it ourselves or anything else out there that you know we're willing to take that risk. Getting people to sort of just say that needed an unbelievable amount of value to deliver to the customer to get them to sort of go over that line. And we had not an inkling <laughs> of how much that would be. And I absolutely would not have listened to myself from the future if I told me that, then I am certain. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, sort of a related point. So you look out into the world, even if it's completely unrelated space to where you're working today. I mean, what product would you love to see that's just not there? The thing that's on my mind, it fits the theme of, you know, investing in our efficiency. So, you know, because you've met him, that I have a three month old. That story of <laughs> fundraising, well, with the newborn is one for a different podcast, perhaps. We've just talked about the remote team and the constant sort of coordination meetings, especially for me. I feel I'm in meetings quite a bit. And I find myself sort of wanting to take care of my son because honestly, like, he's not, I hope he doesn't hear this in 10 years and hates me for it. He doesn't require 100% of my cognitive capacity right now to sort of keep happy, but he does make noise. So what I want is actually very specific. I'm really tempted to actually get it built somehow. Sometimes I'll have these ideas and then I'll look at Amazon and somebody's built it. And I'm like, great, 
This is the best way to search. You invent something and you search for it and you find it. Unfortunately, the world has not yielded to my wishes yet. The secret isn't real. So what I want is a headset with two microphones, right? The one microphone is normal. It's just a normal microphone, like the one I'm wearing now. And the other one would be some kind of a vibration microphone. So either a bone conduction or a throat mic that doesn't get the sound signal from the air. It gets it through vibration of my skin or my bones, my skull in particular. But those mics, their sound quality is not great. The special forces use them and all of that, but it's like the old schools or CB type quality. But if you combine the two and you use the vibration mic as a gate to the actual mic, so basically whenever the vibration mic detects vibration, the actual mic's high quality signal is allowed to go through then you basically have an automatic mute button that does not let anything through unless you're actually speaking. And that means you could be doing a lot of things, like taking care of my son in my case, or I could be going shopping, or I could be doing any sort of thing to sort of help out, while being, you know, 95% engaged. And I know I can do that cognitively, but the headphone technology isn't keeping up with me. I've not conceived of that before at all, as apparently has no one else that's decided to build it. I would buy that too. It's two of us, right? Are we a market? <laughs> not yet. But I think there are more folks with newborns and relatively kind of hectic lives that might buy. That's great. That's great. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us in Build today. Thank you. It's great to chat as always. Hey, listeners, it's Kyle from OpenView. I wanted to give you all a heads up about our upcoming product-led growth summit in San Francisco on November 13th. There's an amazing lineup of speakers from companies like Slack, SurveyMonkey, Rothy's, Expensify, and many more. Get your ticket at plgsummit.eventbrite.com and use code BUILD for 50% off. Hope to see you there. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to BUILD on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite purveyor of podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's read by over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Also, while you're there, check out new content daily on our blog. Until next time, 